All right, guys, welcome to the show. In just a bit, we're going to have on country music star Granger Smith. Uh, he's a super talented guy. He's fascinating. And honestly, of all the celebrities I've talked to in the past couple years, he might be the most thoughtful and enjoyable. I really enjoyed talking to him. Um, you're going to like him. He's, he's lived through some serious family tragedy. About a year ago, he lost his youngest son. And the way he and his wife powered through that together is just a really inspiring story. Um, but before we get into that, um, today I wanted to get a little bit personal with you. No political rant, no dad questions. Um, I want to get a little personal. It's going to be that kind of show. And to be honest, I'm, I'm a little bit nervous about this one, about sharing a personal story. It's going to be, uh, you know heavily edited because there's some details I just I don't want to give. But I want to tell you a personal story about love and addiction. And the reason I want to tell you this is because, number one, I overcame it, has a happy ending. And number two, we've recently learned that Big Pharma has been paying doctors to prescribe OxyContin far after they knew the dangers of it. And worse than that, they were paying insurance companies bonuses for overdoses. That's a fact. You can read about it on CNN or Fox News or whatever news source you trust. It's truly, truly disgusting. And the reason I want to talk about it is I got addicted to OxyContin. Millions of people out there are. And it's important that everybody in the country, especially right now when we're locked down and government is telling us what we can and cannot do, that we all come to the personal realization that these big corporations and the government, they're in bed together and they do not have our best interests at heart. They, they have not in at least 30 years and they probably haven't for much longer than that. But for my adult life, they've not had our best interests at heart. And I could give you dozens of examples. The government is not our daddy. They're, 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 it's flawed. The, the way it's put together is flawed. It's corrupted by money and, and uh, big corporate interests. And it's time that we all claim personal responsibility for our health and our well-being. Um, in regards to COVID, in regard to these lockdowns, in regard to our financial situation, everything. But let, let me tell you my personal story so you can understand where I'm coming from and you can get a taste of, of why this news about these insurance companies is so truly disgusting and why you should be outraged and why you should not trust them and why you should think about that when this vaccine comes out. I'll probably end up taking the vaccine, but I'll do my damn best to research this myself. I'm not going to take their word for it. So let me rewind back to 1997. I mean, I was a graduate student um, getting my master's degree and I was an idiot. I was at a buddy's farm. We were drinking, we were smoking a little hooch, and um, I'd never been on a horse, but we went out to his, he had some race horses in the backyard. Uh, one of them, to my understanding, had never been ridden, which, which I was not told, which kind of sucks in hindsight, but doesn't matter. I, I didn't know how to ride horses. He puts me on the horse. I volunteer myself to get on the horse. I was not forced to be put on the horse. Horse takes off running, throws me off. I land on my head, I, I dislocate my shoulder, I break a bone in my neck. The next five years, well, for every single day since then, for the rest of my life, I've had pain because of that one stupid decision. You know, young guys make dumb decisions. Young drunk guys make even dumber decisions. I've had two shoulder surgeries and nine neck surgeries 
in all the time since then. Uh, several other accidents from rock climbing falls and surfing and all kinds of things. Uh, but that's where it all started. But for the first five years of that chronic pain and all those surgeries, I never took a single pill. Just didn't seem right to me. I just, I didn't, I was a very healthy guy. Like physically, I worked out all the time and I ate very healthy. Even as a kid, I didn't want to put, start putting pills in my body. But all that changed in 2002 with a couple life-changing events that I'm, I'm going to tell you about. I, I met a girl who I fell in love with and she was a dangerous girl. And uh, she gave me my first taste of what would become my greatest love for a short while, which was OxyContin. I mean, it immediately wiped away my, my chronic, severe physical pain, which was really debilitating. And it made everything better, in, like instantly. And soon after that, I was on the doctor's tit, just getting new prescriptions every other week, pretty much. And, and they never once, you know, gave me any warnings that it might be addictive. I, I, deep down inside, I'm sure I knew. But um, there was no help from anyone else. So, you know, at first, the opiates, they seemed like a gift. It solved my pain problem. They made me a better writer, a more sensitive lover, and a more productive business owner. I mean, in the first year, I, I started a business and I penned my first novel while taking these pills. I mean, it seemed like a gift. Um, no more than five years after that, I was taking 20 pills, 20 Oxycontin pills just a day, not 20 milligrams, 20 pills just to function, just to feel normal. They were slowly killing me. My bladder was failing. So it's five years. We're talking about five years I took them for. My bladder was failing. I'd have to wake up and go to the bathroom seven times a night. My kidneys weren't functioning right. My testosterone was low. I was a skinny fat guy. I was anemic. I even had a stroke. You know, I was something like, I don't know, I was in my early thirties, I think I had a stroke. I was on the verge of complete body failure and I had a wife and a brand new baby to take care of. And I could barely manage my own body fluids. I never slept well. I was cold all the time. I used to tape hand and foot warmers all over my body to keep me warm enough to, to leave the house and go to work. I mean, it got, it got real bad towards the end. And I, I knew that I was going to leave my son without a father unless I, unless I fixed the situation immediately. So I did fix it. We'll get to that. But let, let's rewind back to how, how this got started in 2002, right? So you can understand because it can happen to every, anybody. I just come out of a surgery. No pills, by the way. Um, I meet this girl. Her name's Alejandra. She's a beautiful girl. She's a singer. You know, that really plucks at my heartstrings. She could sing. She was sexy. She had long, beautiful legs bright green eyes, just a beautiful girl. She was also nuts, but she used to sing to me and, and it was just, it was just too easy to fall in love with her, but she was an artist and, and completely nuts. And one weekend we were supposed to go away together and I had to cancel for some reason. I don't remember. And she comes back on that Monday and I go see her and she's like, um, I met another guy and I got engaged like just over the weekend. It's like, what you did? What are you kidding me? So, I mean, I was heartbroken and heartbreak makes physical pain even worse. So two months later, she calls me out of the blue. You know, I tried to put her out of my mind. She calls me out of the blue and asks if I'll go to Tijuana with her. And I'm like, well, what about your man? You know, and she makes up some story and whatever. I didn't really care. I, I was ready to jump on the opportunity and win this girl back. So we go down to Tijuana and 
I'm going to skip the details. We have a totally Tijuana kind of day. I mean, like everything you've heard about Tijuana is true. And that's the day we had. And then we're standing in line at customs to walk back across the border into San Diego. And she says, kiss me. So without hesitation, I kiss her. I mean, not just because she asked me to, but because I'd been wanting to kiss her every day for the past month since she dumped me. And though I never let her know that, she she definitely knew. So as I kiss her, I noticed her hands moving down the front of her pants. Now, this is a little bit graphic, um, so bear with me. But I, I was caught off guard when I noticed she was stuffing a bag of pills into her Wawa for the purpose of smuggling pills back into America. Now, I didn't, I didn't even realize she bought pills during the course of that day, and I didn't know why she couldn't do the old uh, vagina tuck before we were in line in customs, but whatever. Okay, I, I rolled with it. Now, that moment should have been a wake-up call to me um, that you know Alejandra was bad news, but if I'm being honest, the danger and excitement turned me on. So 20 minutes after crossing the border, we're at a hotel in San Diego. And at that point, she explains, she asked me to go to Mexico with her because her her fiance was a goody-goody Christian that wouldn't approve of her smuggling drugs in her vagina across the border. Um, I thought she was the goody-goody Christian. I mean, she was a goody-goody Christian. Uh, The the girl didn't even drink um, because of her religion. She was just nuts. Um, so she says, I'm going to take a nice hot bath. And I'm like, all right, we're, we're in a hotel now. And she she removes a couple pills from her baggie and pops them in her mouth. And then she extends her hands and offers them to me. Now, I, like I said, I've ne- I'd never pop pills, but without even asking, because I was so smitten with this girl. And this is, this is the also the danger of just, you know, falling in love and losing losing your head. And it's not the first time I'd fallen in love with a girl who who uh, was a danger to me. Um, And that's on me. That's on me. I put the two pills in my mouth and I swallowed. Um, It's the kind of impulsive decision-making that's been a recurring theme in my younger life. I've moved beyond that because I've learned several times the hard way through love, through loss of money, through loss of possessions, like impulsive decision-making has gotten me in trouble in my, in my twenties and thirties. Um, she headed into the bathroom to take a bath and and I was left there alone to just melt into pure and beautiful bliss that is almost always one's first opiate experience. I mean, I I really don't know how to describe it to people when they ask, but it it's it just felt like my entire body was filled with like a warm purple light. Like all my concerns disappeared, my pain just just left me now that's the great that's the the dangerous thing about opiates is they make you feel amazing and they will get rid of your pain in the beginning after a few months they don't really do the same thing for your pain anymore but they still make you feel amazing and then further down the road they don't make you feel amazing they're barely touching your pain but you need the pills to feel like a regular person like your body just needs it to to be normal. So 20 minutes later, I'm I'm in the bath with her and I'm feeling great and in that moment I knew that I 
I knew two things. I knew I wanted more of whatever those pills were and I was going to win Alejandra back. I was good. And for the next month, I would be going over to her apartment at odd hours. Um, I didn't ask about the boyfriend, the, the fiance. I'd, I'd roll over whenever she wanted me and we'd pop a couple pills and do what grownups do when they get together. And every time it was amazing. It was wonderful. Then one day I just showed up unannounced and she's trying on a wedding gown because <laughs> her wedding was like a week away, which I didn't know about. So that's the last time I saw her. But um, at that point, I was only taking those pills when I would see her. Um, and it was the only time my pain would go away. That's probably how those pills should be used intermittently when the pain is really bad. That that's They work when you use them that way. But nobody uses them that way, or very few people use them that way. They suck you in. Um, you know, now my neck and my shoulder and my back hurt, and my heart was also hurting because of Alejandra. And I wanted more pills, but she was the person I got the pills from. So I made an appointment with my doctor, and with without even asking too many questions, he started prescribing them to me. And I didn't see it as a problem. I set rules for myself and I followed them. At first, I would only take them on weekends when I wanted to be active. Then it was weekends plus Tuesdays. And, you know, you make these rules, you break them, you set new rules. And before long, I'm taking them every single day. Um, But still, I didn't think I had a problem because I hadn't missed any work. My relationship with my new girlfriend was going amazingly well. Um... All my friends, I wasn't hiding it. All my friends knew about me popping pills. It became like a funny theme. Oh, man, uh, he's popping pills. I didn't hide it. And I, I'm i pretty sure my family thought I had it under control. Like nobody nobody really gave me a, a talking to. I had it under control. I was functioning. I seemed like I had everything together. My pain was reduced. I was doing things I, I hadn't been able to do in the previous years. They seemed to be a blessing. But underneath it all, I, I think I knew. And I started building a tolerance and soon I'm taking 10 of them a day and barely feeling it. And I couldn't get enough from the doctor to support what I needed. So I had to resort to buying them on the street. Then at one point I remember I had to fly out of town and um, I didn't have a prescription to take with me and I didn't want to risk flying with street pills. So I just decided to go without. And that's when it first hit me that I had a problem because two days later I'm in another state I don't have my pills. And I started feeling like I had the flu and I didn't even realize that what it was, was withdrawal. And I didn't realize it because it had been years since I'd gone a single day without popping pills. And I was deathly ill in the other state for about four days until I scored some pills where I was. Like I had to resort to going into the, the worst neighborhood of where I was and asking around and finding pills. And then I knew I had an issue, but I wasn't sure how to get out of it. Um, but I didn't tell my doctor and my doctor kept prescribing pills, though, again, not enough for what I needed. So I'm, I'm still going to my street guy. And then not long after that, it's New Year's Day. Um, now my, my, my brand new you know, my, my girl and I were at a friend's house watching the bowl games. And at this point, my habit is now 20 pills a day, which is insane and also expensive. Um, I was out of all out of pills and the dealer was also having a holiday. So I call him and he doesn't want to deal with me because it's a holiday. Um, 
but he lets me, he agrees to let me come over if I, if I pay triple. That was the deal. I'm going to pay triple. So I lie and I lie to the people I'm with and I tell them I got to go to the office to, for some work or something on, on New Year's Day, like total BS. Who knows if anyone bought it? I drive to Compton and I go to the stash house. Um, typically, I'd always met the dude on the corner. I'd never actually been in the, in the house. And when, when I go inside, there's at least a dozen gangbangers. They're bloods. They're all strapped with guns. They, most of them look like teenagers. Um, some of them are sitting around a, a small television. I don't know why this detail stuck with me, but it did. But they're playing Tech Mobile, you know, from like, what was that game from the 80s on Nintendo? Um, and on the table, I saw a mound of black tar heroin at least two feet high. So now this, I know this is serious business now. And also, uh, totally like you would see in the movies, there were two girls, both topless, one Mexican, one black, surgical masks, cutting the heroin and putting it into tiny balloons. So I was a little intimidated, but I tried to play it cool. He gives me a bag of pills. I give him the money. And just then, uh, one of the gangbangers starts yelling at the television. And he picks up the Nintendo and smashes it on the floor. And everyone begins yelling and, and, and fighting. Like I said, the, these were teenagers. Um, I got nervous and I made a quick exit. And then against the very specific and terse instructions given to me from uh, my drug dealing, uh, gun strapped, gang banging friend, I opened the pills in my car and I started popping them because that's what I wanted to do. Um, as I'm taking them, and I'm sitting there and feeling that warm purple light wash over me, they end up out on the street fighting. And I just sat there because I was feeling good and I was intrigued. And either I didn't care or I was unaware of whatever danger was going on while these gangbangers are threatening each other with guns. So after, I don't know, five, 10 minutes, whatever, cop cars pull up. Cops jump out, they run past my car, and after the gangbangers. And at that point, I, I get out of there. Um, two weeks later, the dude's number is disconnected, most likely because he's in jail. And I wasn't about to drive back to the stash house. So now I start going to Skid Row, which is probably, in my estimation, the most likely place to score and probably also the most likely place to get arrested or murdered. <laughs> Um, Skid Row, if you guys are not familiar, it's in downtown Los Angeles and it's just loaded with homeless drug addicts. It's, it's a mess. And in California today, in Los Angeles today, thanks to our awesome political situation, Skid Row is growing and growing and growing and overtaking other parts of the city. Um, anyway, I scored, I took some pills that night. I had some buddies in from out of, out of state. And I drove two hours away uh, to meet up with them after taking pills. We drank all night. We celebrated. We hadn't seen each other in five, six years. And driving home, I predictably get pulled over, get arrested for a DUI. Um, now, again, as many, many years ago, uh, luckily, they never searched my car or the charges would have been much more severe because of what was in there. So I spent the night in jail. It was awful. That's a whole other story of, of what went on in that jail. I, I, I did not, I was not super compliant with the cops. They were very abusive to me. They, all kinds of stuff went on. That's another story for another time. 
Um, but upon getting out of jail, first thing I did is I go back to my car in right there where it is and, and start taking him because I'm already going through withdrawal. So I did it right there. And it's just a couple days after that, that I, I learned that my wife's pregnant and I was thrilled, super, super thrilled. So we're five years in, right? But now at this point, after just getting arrested for DUI, after what went happened at the stash house, after uh, ending up on Skid Row, I had to be honest with myself and for the first time admit, like my, my first hint was what happened when I flew out of state about a year before that. But now I full on had to admit myself that I had a problem and that I had to fix it if I was ever going to be a, a decent father. And being a great dad was something that was always something I wanted to be. It was a very important thing to me. It's something I thought about oddly, like a weirdo, probably since I was like 19 or 20 years old. Seriously. I, I couldn't fuck that up. So I stopped immediately. Cold turkey. I'm just like, fuck it. I'm done with these pills. 20 pills a day. No more. Done. Boom. Um, and really even, even, even my wife didn't get it. Nobody got it because I kept everything together and in, in order in my life and pressed through with everything and the sickness I was experiencing and the kidney failure and all that stuff. I just didn't talk about it. So nobody really got the danger I was in. Um, so I quit and everybody, and I, I told my wife I was quitting. I think she thought it would be easy because I don't think she realized the severity of it, but it wasn't easy at all. Um, for two weeks, I went through massive withdrawal and I'll spare you the details, but it's like you've all seen it in, in the movies exactly like that. You know, if you've seen basketball diaries, it's like that, except you're not, I wasn't a crazed lunatic trying to beat people up, but I was, it's like having the worst case of the flu you've ever had. It's like I had typhoid fever once when I went to the Philippines and I would compare it to that times 10. Um, so after two weeks, the physical withdrawal went away, luckily, but then it's replaced with a severe depression and a complete lack of energy and motivation. So, so all those years of being super productive while on it, suddenly that changes. And now people can see that there's a problem because I, I'm having trouble going to work. I'm having trouble doing anything, but but the bare minimum of what I need to do to, to get through life. Um, so I went to a new pain management doctor. I, I realized, uh, it's, you know, I either I'm going to have to start taking these pills again or figure out something else. So I go to a pain management doctor, go to a doctor. And for the first time I tell him how many pills I was taking and what, what I'm experiencing and what does he do? but he recommends I take this new miracle drug. He's going to replace the Oxycontin with a new pill called Suboxone. And he describes it to me as the new and improved methadone, but without any of the side effects. He told me I might need to take it for the rest of my life, but that's okay because there's no downside to it. This is what the, a doctor tells me. He prescribes me 16 milligrams of this per day. And I'm happy about this. But for whatever reason, this this pill hit me harder than the OxyContin, and it put me on my ass. So what did I do? I cut the dose in half, but in true addict form, I didn't tell the doctor I cut the dose in half because I liked how I felt with this new drug. And I began taking eight milligrams and stockpiling the extra stuff. So my problem was solved. My insurance was covering 100% of this. I was, It was helping my pain. And I was still getting high. 
I mean, getting clean was great. But then a year later, less than a year later, my son was born and and my body was really starting to break down in all the ways I previously mentioned. I was going to work, coming home, playing with my son for a couple hours. I mean, he's he's like a month or two old and going straight to bed. I was miserable and I was getting worse every day. And I knew this, this Suboxone was not going to cut it. So again, I took matters in my own hand. I'm like, I quit that cold turkey. I quit it. And the withdrawal from the Suboxone was even worse than with the OxyContin, even worse. Still, I'm like, I, I had to do it. I was doing it for my son. I stayed off it for three months. I stayed off it. And every day was a struggle. And every day I felt like staying off those pills was going to kill me faster than going back on them. But so after three months, I saw no other option. I got back on it on a very minimal dose, very minimal dose. But of course that changes. It's minimal. Then you're, then you add a milligram, then you add another milligram, and then you're right back where you were. Um, and I just resigned myself to the fact that I was going to be on those pills forever. Like the doctor said, then I heard, uh, the Joe Rogan podcast. And I'll be forever grateful for this. He was on with Amber Lyons, who was a CNN host who quit her gig at CNN as like a nighttime reporter to study hallucinogenics. And they were talking about the world's most powerful hallucinogenic, which is called Ibogaine. Um, And this will have to be something for another show because we're longer into this than I want to be and I want to get on with the interview. But let's just say I I did my research on this Ibogaine. I did research like I've never researched anything before because I knew this was really like my one shot and I was not impulsive. I researched and researched and researched and I found a clinic in Mexico because it's not legal here. I went there and spent $6,000, which was far more than I can afford at that time. And I I had a week of treatment of this world's most powerful hallucinogenic and it knocked the addiction right out of me, really did. It knocked it right out of me and that was... That was, uh, I don't know what year that was, maybe 2008. And that's the last time I ever took a pill. Last time. Um, I mean, I've taken, I've had a Vicodin here or there after major injury, but I've never had Oxycontin and I've never had more than one or two pills in a day. And that's a couple times a year. All my body systems recovered. My testosterone is back. The anemia is gone. The depression's gone. Physical fatigue and weakness are gone. My energy is as good as it's ever been. My enthusiasm for life came back. I would call myself a really good dad. I'm always there for my kids. I play with them. I educate them. We spend time together. And I'm, I'm so grateful I was I able to do that. I don't even refer to myself as being an, addi- an addict um, because I'm, I'm not addicted anymore. I... I, I drink with friends socially. That's never been a problem. I smoke weed when I feel like it. Um, I just look at myself as somebody who abused the drug and now I don't abuse it. Um, and I like, I like that mindset more because I feel like when you, you know, different things work for different people. I know a lot of people go to AA and, and they believe in it and that's great. And if it works for you, great. But for me, that mindset of admitting the problem is above you and submitting to a higher power and that you are powerless against that drug. To me, that's just setting yourself up for failure. And 95% of people who are in AA do relapse. I don't like to go, I don't like the idea of submitting that you are powerless against a drug because you're not. 
you, you have free will and you can beat it. You can beat it. You might need help, but you can do it. You're not powerless. Anyway, that's again for another time. The point of all this, why did I tell you this story? Um, it's a good story, even though I left out a lot of the riveting details. It's a good story. Um, but the main reason I told it is because I allowed myself to get addicted because I trusted the people giving me pills without ever asking a single question. And that's on me. That's my fault. Um, but I trusted authority when I was young. I trusted the doctors. I trusted teachers. I trusted the pharmaceutical companies. And, and to be honest, I, I probably didn't even want to know the downside anyway. I liked it. But now we have a vaccine coming out from these same pharmaceutical companies for COVID. Um, and in all likelihood, most likely, I will end up taking the vaccine. Uh, I'll end up giving it to my, my children. Most likely. But not for sure. I'm not going to take it until I talk to some doctors whom I personally know and trust. Because I've also seen doctors abuse their authority and power. I've personally experienced that. I've had surgeries that I now know after studying and learning more, I didn't need. Doctors upsold me on surgeries to make a dollar. I don't trust. I, I, I do not trust the government. I don't trust the doctors. I don't trust the pharmaceutical companies. And you might say that's a terrible way to live. But just because somebody has more information and knowledge and wisdom in a certain subject does not make them trustworthy. Um, it actually makes you more vulnerable to being preyed upon if that's their intention. You got to know what kind of person you're dealing with before you trust a person. So I will do my research. I will do my personal research. I'll talk to the right people and I'll wait a little bit and see how other people are responding to it because, it, you know, in all honesty, they've rushed it out. And then when I feel it's safe, I'll, I'll take it. I'll give it to my family. And I just want everyone to do your research. Be, assume responsibility for your own health. Assume responsibility for your own happiness. Assume responsibility for your own financial situation in life. We've got too many people in this country wanting to call themselves victims, point the finger, and want government to fix all their problems. Government can't fix your problems because government is broken, number one. And number two, it's full of corruption and they don't care about you. Don't kid yourself. Assume responsibility for yourself. Anything beyond that is gravy. So, okay, that was way longer than I intended. I'm sorry. Let's get on with Granger. He's amazing. Okay, fat boys and party girls, get out there. Spread some love. I love you guys. All right, on with it. Okay, listen, fellas. It's time to change your dirty old drawers. I mean, look, I know what you're packing because I used to be you. You're wearing underwear that your mama stuffed in your stocking back in 1999. Your underwear is dirty, crusty, stanky, and it's full of holes. It's old enough to get served liquor, and your lady resents you for it. So it's time to get some new underwear from our sponsor, sheathunderwear.com. Use the code word DAD for 20% off. Now these underwear, they're simply life-changing. They're made out of some kind of like magical moisture-wicking material that just sucks up all that peener sweat and keeps your guy so fresh and so clean just like outcast wrapped about at the turn of the century that's right guys dre and big boy 
They were rapping about sheath underwear, and that's a true fact, and that's the Dad Presents Today edition of the H1 Behind the Music. Additionally, guys, Robert Patton, he's the owner and, and inventor of sheath. He's an amazing guy. He supports this show. He supports the ideas of freedom and liberty, and there's just so many cowards out there in the world today. I'm glad to be sponsored by a true patriot, a, a, a true brave man who 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 supports liberty against government tyranny. He's a former vet. He got the idea for sheath underwear while he was serving us in the Middle East because he was tired of always having swamp nuts. And honestly, who's not tired of swamp nuts? So fellas, stop being losers with your raunchy, crusty underwear and get sexy. Get sexy like the dad and get sheath underwear at sheathunderwear.com. Code word dad, 20% off. Your lady will love you long time. Go get it, guys. Okay, boys and girls, music fans, we got country music star, philanthropist, podcaster, and author Granger Smith on the show. Now, I'm going to introduce him here in a second, but I just want to forewarn you that um, it's a little clunky off the start. I missed the first 30 seconds of him talking, mostly because the dad is 47 years old and sucks at technology. So uh, just bear with the clunky start. It's a great interview. He's an awesome guy. Okay. Okay, Granger, welcome, and thanks so much for coming on. Um, now, you do a ton of things, and before we get into everything, I just want to talk about your album that just dropped. We got Country Things, Volume 1 and 2. They just came out after Thanksgiving. I listened to both of them a couple times, and I love the music. Now, um, typically, when an artist puts out an album, they start touring right away. So with COVID and everything, what are you doing in lieu of not being able to tour? And then we don't have that. So it has been, um, it's been a creative challenge to uh, get the music out there in a way that spreads the message of the songs and at the same time uh, keeps people's attention ready for the tour whenever it does happen. So partly for that, it, it's been a lot of integrating the music into YouTube videos and different social media pieces that we've created, whether that's everything from TikTok to um, to uh, Instagram reels to full, uh, you know, full big YouTube videos. And inside YouTube, it's been everything from music videos to to vlogging to um, short documentary pieces. And we're just trying to constantly keep the, the music weaving into those storylines to just keep people's attention on the music. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you do a lot of things, so you definitely have no trouble staying busy. Um, I mean, I remember when all this started, I had, I had tickets to see uh, Pearl Jam, who's my personal favorite band and they hadn't toured in years and spent a lot of money on these tickets. You know, I, I thought, okay, it's going to get kicked down the road, maybe a month. That that was nine ten months ago and 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 here we are and i know a lot of a lot of artists are starting to struggle and very successful artists many who i've had on the show are now starting to struggle to make ends meet so it's probably a good thing you got a lot of other you got a lot of other irons in the fire so um i think a lot of artists are going to have to go in that direction um speaking just to some specific songs on the album i really like the song uh hate you like i love you 
I think that most people know the feeling of like unrequited love and loving someone who doesn't love you back. And you either, you either bury those feelings and accept them or you lash out at the other person. And I know you're, you know, you're in a beautiful, happy marriage. And I'm just wondering, writing a song like this, were you thinking of someone previously? Like what, what's the song about for you? Yeah. yeah well, well, thanks, man. I, I, um, I agree with you that songs like that are probably more relatable than happy love songs because sure. everyone has been in that kind of situation. It doesn't necessarily even have to be a relationship with another human. It could be you, when you remember the, the old house you lived in or the, the vehicle that you had when you were in high school that you ended up selling. And so you kind of have this feeling of, I loved it. I lost it. I want it back. And I just want to stop thinking about that, you know, and that, that's just a natural human sentiment. So I, that, that kind of thing in country music, that theme typically works. And I, I'm a fan of the kind of country music that, that says sad things, but it makes you feel good when you hear it. It sounds good, but makes you feel sad. Um, and, and I should say happy instead of good. It makes you feel happy while you're hearing sad things said. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and so, so it's easy for me to find those kind of moments in my life to tell a story about, even though I'm in a happy marriage. That, um, and it's because I've had, I've had plenty of instances where I've regretted something or wished I had something back and wanted to just stop thinking about it. And that's what that song's about. Yeah. Uh, oh, oh touch on what you're saying about it. It makes sad things happy. Um, I mean, that's one of the, the beautiful things about music is you can be down in the dumps and you hear the right song that you relate to and it just completely changes your mood, pulls you out of it, makes you feel like somebody else has felt the same pain that you feel. Um, it's a powerful thing. Um, Pearl Jam's great at that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they sure are. Um, buy a boy a baseball, that song. So I imagine most dads can really relate to this song. I got to be honest, for the majority of my life, I was never really into country music. And it's only been in like the last five, six, seven years since I've been a dad that I've really gotten into it more. And I think part of that reason is because country music really kind of hits on the family dynamic in a way that that rock doesn't. I don't know. It's just kind of how I feel about it. That's interesting. Um, yeah, when you when you write a song like that, like a, a a positive vibe, like family song, do you get more positive feedback from fans than just any other country song? Well, it's interesting because it you know it, it not everyone can relate to a song like "By a Boy Baseball," um, except for the fact that guys could relate to that if they remember their relationship with their dad. So you don't necessarily have to be a dad. But you wonder if a random girl could relate to that song. True. And it's interesting that I have seen girls respond on social media saying, oh, I love this song. And I wonder if it's maybe they're thinking that that's what they would want to see out of a husband that's mm. playing with not. I don't I don't know. Um, but it does talk about a girl in the second verse, you know, um, about how basically teaching them to get outside and work with his hands and play a sport could lead them to being a better boyfriend, a better husband, yeah, a better father. So it's, it's, it's interesting. What, what song you said 
that you weren't really into country music until you were a dad. Do you remember specifically, was there a song that you thought, ah, I could actually relate to that? I did, Are you familiar with, you live around Austin, right? Yep. Are you familiar with Bob Schneider? Yeah, of course. Okay, so he's not, I went, he's not country, but he kind of does all of it. And uh, a buddy took me to his show out here and I, I went and uh, just fell in love with his music. So then I just started a deep dive into it and I got into his country stuff and then it just, it grew from there. And I've seen him like three or four times in the past couple of years. He, he's wonderful. So it wasn't a specific song. It was just that specific artist. Sure. Yeah. Where did you go? Was it Troubadour? Or? Yep, it was. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, so you've played out here, I can see. I have. We've yeah. played the Troubadour several times and um, it's sad to think of what will, will come of some of those venues now. Yeah. Some of them aren't coming back ever. Yeah. Yeah. It's real sad. Um, okay. So you're, you're, you got an alter ego, which is pretty interesting. Earl Dibbles Jr. Yes. Um, and I remember, you know, Garth Brooks did this and I didn't think it went so awesomely, but you know, that's <laughs> for others to judge. Eminem has a bit of an alter ego with the Slim Shady thing. Um, you're, I, I watch the videos. A lot of your videos are really entertaining. They're really funny. Uh, seems like you really kind of lean into the persona, of the don't tread on me Texan, which I can get behind, especially now during these lockdowns as a Californian. Um, what made you decide to roll out an alter ego and how much of that is, is you or something you're just trying to have fun with? Yeah, well, it definitely didn't start as an, an intentional alter ego. It was, it started in 2011 is we were putting out, my brothers and I were just trying to put out different pieces of content to help market a new album that we we're coming with. And we wanted, no one knew who, who I was. So we just were trying to get some things to go semi-viral on social media and there was several different characters that we were just, you know, just kind of like you, you throw mud at a chain link fence and see what sticks to it. And that, that's what we were doing. And Earl Dibbles was a ultra country boy. And we knew some, we've had some family members that are similar to Earl sure. and the combination of that and some club owners that we knew. It, like the jaded country boy type. And so I remember one day my brother said, Hey, let's go film that the ultra country boy guy. And I just went into the closet and threw on some clothes, which happened to be some, you know, I figured that overalls and a white tank top would be perfect. And an old trucker cap and, you know, tucking the, the pant leg into the boots would be, would be funny. And we really didn't think that much about it. We drew on a bunch of tattoos with Sharpies, you know, just, just being funny. And when we finished filming it, I went, I went back to the house and edited it. And I just thought, I mean, I, I think it's kind of funny. I don't know if anyone else will. I, there was, that was the whole thought behind it. And we put it on YouTube and it started going viral and we thought, well, this is fun. This is, this is something that people are watching. So let's do another one. So then I wrote a song for Earl and then we made a music video with that song and then that started going viral on youtube and it was not until then in 2012 when i decided well now it's got to be part of the live show like at the end of the show earl will run out and sing his song and then that went over really well in the live show and it just slowly evolved piece by piece into what became an alter ego yeah that's how it started yeah um 
it, I mean, it is funny, but I, I also bet a, a lot of people, you know, it, it's fun to have a good time and laugh at, at, at things, but I bet a lot of people also it like resonates with them. So it, you know, it, it hit on several levels. Um, now you, you also have a, a podcast, you've got a YouTube show, uh, you wrote a, 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 a funny book under the name Earl Dibbles. Um, it's, it's very clear in your music. And then I listened to a few episodes of your podcast to prepare for this and listening to that. It's even more clear that your faith is very important to you. Um, singing about your faith nowadays is almost considered like a, a risky thing to do as an artist, which is wild. You know, it wouldn't have been that way 30, 40 years ago, but that's a bit of a risky thing. Now um, you had a very painful tragedy a few years, a couple years ago. Um, I can't imagine the pain of that, losing your son. How much was your faith a part of the healing process? What what else got you through that? Well, I, I've always had that faith to some level, and I wouldn't I wouldn't say it was very high, um, especially the the later years of my life. I think I got I got kind of complacent in it. And, you know, things were, things were great. And my, my wife and I, we, we had a great relationship. We had three be- beautiful children. Um, things were going pretty well in the career. It, and, and I was just felt, I felt very, um, very complete, you know, and very satisfied. Uh, I was, I was extremely grateful. So I shouldn't take that out of the equation, but I felt, I felt pretty complete. I felt pretty good. Um, the economy was great, you know, and I was living the dream and I think times like that can become in a way, I don't want to misphrase this, but they can become a little bit dangerous to a, to a, to a faith. Um, it can become a little bit dangerous to a relationship to God when you start kind of forgetting that you need him because everything's great. And it was really, to get to your question, it was really uh, when we lost my son, Riv, that the, I just fell to my knees and just said, gosh, I've been, I haven't been talking to you very much, God. You know, I haven't been saying anything and, and I need you now. I don't, I, don't, I can't do it any other way. I cannot do this with my weak humanly brain and soul. I can't do it. I need help from you. And that's when it really, uh, that's when I really dialed it in and still do every day, try to think of him first. And how do I, how do I dial that in closer and closer to, to be fulfilling the purpose that I'm supposed to be on this earth. And that's, that's, that's really a new thing for me, Matt. I, I, I've always, I've always considered myself a Christian, but that's that kind of thought is pretty new for me. Yeah, I mean, I I can't relate, but I I I imagine that's when you know something like that. That's when people. That's when you turn to your faith. That's that's when yeah. you need it most. Um, and I, I do have I do have a, a couple friends actually who went through something similar, and for one couple, it just absolutely destroyed the family. It broke the family yeah. apart. Um. Yeah. I mean, I don't know for sure. I don't know you personally, but from what I've seen on your YouTube show, you and your wife seem super strong, super connected. Yeah. Um, do you have any advice for other people who who go through this sort of thing? Like, how did you keep that marriage so strong? 
Well, we knew that what you said about other couples, we knew that. And so we, I remember that, you know, that it was within the first couple nights we got together and we just made it, we kind of recommitted ourselves to each other. Um, you know, the whole for better or for worse without, okay, here, here's the worst, you know, we're in the worst right now. And so we, we recommitted ourselves in that moment while we were still numb to everything, while we were still kind of lost in the moment. And we just, we, we gave our, we gave ourselves to each other in a new way that said, okay, here we go. It's, this is going to be bad. We're going to lean on each other. Um, sometimes some days are going to be really bad for you and I'll be, I'll be having a better day. Those days you lean on me. Then there's going to be other days when I'm having a really hard time and you're not, and I'm going to lean on you. And, um, we, in that, that kind of recommitment to each other in our marriage, um, has been huge. And I think probably the biggest thing of all is that neither one of us blame each other for anything that happened. And that's just, I can't explain how tremendous that is in our relationship that neither one of us look at each other and, and have any kind of, um, animosity towards any of the the bad things that have happened. We just, uh, we stand strong together. That's amazing. That, that, that's amazing. And, and you guys are an inspiration. I mean, I, I know personally myself and my wife, we fight about some ridiculous, silly things and blame each other over some ridiculous, silly things. And I imagine most sure. couples out there do. So what a, what a testament to your relationship. Um, so I'm happy for you guys. Um, you know, now artists in general, I've, we talked to a lot of artists on the show. To me, it seems like artists in general, part of what makes artists artists and what makes them so great is that they they tend to feel things maybe a little bit more than your average guy they 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 feel things and then they communicate what they're feeling through their music through their art um whatever how much of your your personal pain um and healing process has gone into this new album any of it or or did you try to disconnect for that or did you really pour it into it yeah, I, I think I think a lot of it, and I do, I do have a tendency to disconnect in a lot of ways, except music. And I could I could dive into music uh, on an emotional level and not have to get specific with lyrics. I don't have to take a lyric and make it exactly you know what's going on in my life or someone else's life or tell a story in that way. I could I could tell it through the emotion of the melody or through the, the heightened emotion of a, another kind of story. So like a, a, a really, really inspirational love song could be, for me, a way of expressing um, some kind of lost love. You know, and, and I, know that, I know that sounds crazy, but I could, you know, I could sing a song about losing love and it could be truly a, a love, an actual love song to me. Um, so I, I have done that much longer than I have been making money doing music. I was just using that to express a feeling about, you know, a, a girl in the seventh grade or, or, uh, yeah. or anything I was dealing with at the time. I've always used music to, to dial in that. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's one of the beautiful things about making a living through an art, like all artists, when they start out, they're not starting out in their art 
to be rich and famous or starting out because they love it. They're passionate about it. You know, it was a way for you to express yourself. And what do you know, people could connect to it. And, and now you're a very successful musician, but that, you know, they, it's said, um, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. And I, I think that's, that's true, right? Like you're living the dream with, with being a, a country music star and, and everything else you're going on. Um, now, in the wake of the tragedy, you started a fund, um, a charity, which is you know awesome to give back to the community. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about what that is and how they can contribute? Yeah, well, it started with, um, I guess, I guess at the very beginning, just to be just to be fully transparent. I think the beginning was when um, Amber decided to donate Rivers' organs. And it kind of caught, caught me off guard because I hadn't thought about it. And I don't, to this day, I don't really know how she thought about it at that time. But she just, just decided that that's how we would start his legacy is by donating his, his organs. And then that, that thought kind of evolved into when we got home, we decided, you know what, let's, let's make a t-shirt. There's a lot of eyes on us right now with this because it, unfortunately it was in the news a lot. And we weren't, although we weren't saying anything, um, people were, the, the news was kind of just reporting, uh, reporting the story because we were in the spotlight really. And so we thought with these eyes on us, let's make a t-shirt and we'll give all of that money back to the hospital because we were just so overwhelmed with, um, the, the, the caring in the hospital and, and I mean, people, nurses crying Mm -hmm. and these nurses, they were crying, but they had only met him with his eyes closed 24 hours before that. And so it's like, man, they got, they become so attached and they, and then I realized that when we left, there'd be another bed made and then another child would come in and it would start over again and they would get reattached and and re-emotionally involved. And I just thought these people are heroes. They're heroes in there. And so we were, we gave back all the money from the t-shirts that we did to the hospital. And then that led to that feeling of giving that check to the hospital. Just, we just thought, well, we can't stop now. We have to make this official and make a fund. So we made the river Kelly fund. And at the time of making it, if you make a foundation, for instance, a foundation legally has to be directed towards one cause. And we didn't want to, we couldn't decide on one cause. So we decided if we'd made it a fund, it would allow us to support anything we wanted at any time. So since then, we've been able to give to um, military veteran assistance, um, other children's hospitals. Um, like St. Jude, um, hurricane relief funds. Um, we've we've built helped build parks in cities, and so it kind of just allows us to pivot around and use his little legacy to raise money and just put a little bit here and a little bit here and a little bit here, just constantly um, finding people in need and giving there. And so we're still, you know, we're still only a couple years into this, but it already feels like it's the right thing to be able to, to extend his legacy by finding meaning and purpose and 
knowing that this wasn't for nothing, you know, there's, there's always a reason and we'll continue to find that meaning through through giving through his charity. Yeah. Um, and it's the river Kelly fund. I assume people can find out about it on your website, right. And donate yes. there. Yeah. Riverkellyfund.org, I believe. Yeah. Great. And yeah, I mean, what you said, I, I remember when it happened, seeing it on the news, the, the media, they're, they're, they're vultures. We've seen that in the past nine months very clearly. Yeah. Um, but what you said about nurses is so true. Number one, uh, when my friend went through this, I, I saw that and it kind of blew me away too. And number two, my, my, my wife is a nurse and I see it. I see it when she comes home, like she, she feels what's happening at work, especially mm. now with, with the COVID thing. So, um, they, nurses, there's, there's special people. So I, I'm, I'm glad you did that. I'm oh. glad you're doing it. And I encourage everybody who's listening to, to go, take a look and, and donate what you can. You're, you're, there's a lot of, there's a lot of celebrities out here making a lot of noise and they can be annoying. You're, you're putting your, your money where your mouth is and putting your, your heart and your, and your work into it. And I appreciate that. Um, your, your YouTube show. So I, I watched a few episodes and it's very professionally done. The, the camera work, the, the narration is pretty spot on. Um, the, Number one, do you have any kind of like Hollywood aspirations? Um, and number, number, number two, what I wanted to ask you about, it's clear from, from watching the show, um, you're a very thoughtful guy. You're a very smart guy, right? Um, that's, that's obvious from your podcast. It's obvious from the YouTube show. And out here, you know, Hollywood, a lot of politicians, a lot of the, the rich coastal elites, they, they love to paint with a broad brush, although they will demean anybody who, who does that to certain groups. They love to paint with a, a broad brush about... Southerners. Um, and there's a lot of Southerners and rural people in general who are, who are really, they're suffering. There's a lot of suffering out there in general. Why has it become acceptable to demean Southerners in a way that it's not with any other group, in your opinion? Oh, gosh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, I think I'll start with saying uh, to, to the first thing you said, I, I don't, I don't really have any a, a Hollywood aspirations. I don't, um, I do love making that show and I love I, I like a side, side passion of using the cameras and changing lenses and getting a drone shot and getting a time-lapse of like a sun, the sunset. Oh, you do that stuff yourself? Just, yeah. Yeah. I just oh, wow. really like it. I really like it. And um, it's just a little hobby and I, and I like to every once in a while go back and watch the Smiths and watch an episode and, and think, Oh, that was cool. At the, how the sun was coming through the branches. I'll try to do that another time. I think it's another kind of creative release. I just, I just enjoy it. Hmm. Um, I just assumed you had to, a, a camera guy. I mean, it's, it's good. The, the shots are good. You know what you're doing? Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I just want to keep getting better at it. And um, I, I, uh, I just like, it. I have a passion for it. And to talk to the Southern, the Southern, uh, the Southern thing. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And, and, and I'll say this too, that what's crazy is it's not just Southern, it's really the rural lifestyle, right? Mm -hmm. Because you'll see these people in Michigan or Minnesota or Alberta or, or Ontario or upstate New York or um, Washington state and Oregon, you, you see them everywhere, not just in Georgia and Mississippi and Texas. 
they talk, they all talk a little bit different, <laughs> but, sure. but their, their mentality is the same. And, and gosh, it's, it's, it is easy. And I'll have to collaborate with you on the, on this answer. It is easy to, to, um, broad brush them because they're, they're very predictable, very predictable as a, as a group think. And you could probably say that the same about the, the Hollywood elites that are painting yeah. the broad brush, but you could do that about you most could groups. Take, I mean, that's where stereotypes come from. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So they're very predictable. Um, which is great for me when I'm making music and making videos and, you know, I, it's, it's easy for me to try to shoot to the heart of what I think they're going to, they're going to love. And I fall into that same category and I just, I naturally gravitate towards um, the people that, that are blue collar or work, you work on a farm or work outside or use their, use their hands and, and get dirty. And to me, that, that comes a lot from, I love, I'm just a history buff. And so I love the thought of the way this country was originally founded by the settlers that came over and they all spoke different languages and they, they settled in the West and uh, they, they had everything to lose and they they were betting on that one chance that they could start new and that they could start their kids with a new opportunity. I just love the the pioneer thought. And, and in some ways, you look at the uh, the modern day farmer, and you could feel a little bit of that. You could feel a bit like betting everything on on this next crop or the right. you know, the next. And that uh, you they they rely on and they don't rely on the stock market. They rely on God and the sunshine and the rain. Mm -hmm. It's just something very wholesome about that. Um, and I don't know that you could help me with why you, you could, um, you can kind of pin them all down into uh, one way. <laughs> I, I mean, my, my family comes from rural Pennsylvania. They're not, you're not farmers yeah. and whatnot, but it's, it's that kind of town. There's a lot of that. Um, it's very rural. I don't know why I, I've just noticed that it, that, it's true, especially right now, more than ever. And it bothers me a little bit because that's where my people come from. Um, yeah. And, and, and you I don't like it. Not south. It's, yeah. I mean, Pennsylvania is a great example. That is a country state. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Pennsylvania people are as country as it gets. And they, yeah. get, they get thrown into the category of, of Philly and Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. But everything else is very country. Yeah. I mean, what they say about Pennsylvania is you got, uh, Pittsburgh and Philly and in the middle you have Kentucky and it's, it's pretty true. It's, it's uh, pretty rural yeah. between the two big cities. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so you have 10 million people following you in all of social media, which is, which is massive. It's a massive amount of people. There, there's people who have bigger followings, but when you really quantify that, I mean, 10 million people, that's, that's more people than watch Monday night football. It's an insane number. <laughs> um, I don't, this, this show, we only have a following of a hundred thousand, which to me feels pretty big. And with a hundred thousand, with a hundred thousand, really if I go into the comment sections, which I sometimes do, it can be very disturbing. Like anytime you have a, I think a following of anything over like 10,000, there's can be some people who get pretty, nasty with a with a following of 10 million do you do you on social media go into your comments and read that stuff and engage or do you just stay away from it 
Such a great question because it really changes. I'll go through phases in my life where I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm just not going to go in at all. And then if there's other times, like right now is one of those times I'm in the mood to just kind of make deep dives and partly to, to check the pulse of my, the, the, the hardcore fans that are watching and listening and um, occasionally to find the negative comments to see if they're valid. I mean, maybe, maybe they have a point, you know, sometimes somebody will have a complaint about me and they're right. You know, Wow. if I, if I shelter myself so much that I'm not at least open to seeing that, then I don't know what that's doing to my content. Um, so I do, I do dive in every once in a while and I've, I've actually been in that mood lately and I'll kind of scroll and I'll, I'll see one and I'll see a negative comment and then I'll, I'll go back and I'll comment on that sometimes. But my challenge to myself is to never be harsh to a negative comment. I try to bring um, humility to that. And I could ask them in a hopefully a productive way uh, how they think it should be better, how they would have done it. But I've never tried to just go after them like, get off here, you troll. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd it's you easy what, to do you that. what 99% of other people do. I, I, it kind of blows me away a little bit that that you go into it with an open mind and you're you're open to the criticism. I mean, really, no nobody reads comments that way. Regular people don't read comments that way. Everybody goes in with their defenses up. That's that's uh shows a lot about you. I'm not I'm not special in that way. I've just done it a lot. You know, I've I've I've, I've been looking at comments since I was looking at MySpace, you know, <laughs> and, oh, geez. and, and so it's, my first reaction is always to go get out of here. You troll ban, ban, <laughs> delete, ban. You know, that's always my first reaction, but it doesn't, I've no, I've noticed over the 10 years of looking at these, it doesn't help anything. If you react that way. No, you're right. Yeah. But if you do come in and go, man, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you feel that way. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to try to see, make sure that I don't come across that way again. Um, but I do appreciate the comment and it's amazing when you do that, how many times they go, Oh, I've actually been a big fan for a long time. Sure. Love your stuff. Keep on doing, you know, <laughs> they're yeah. quick to say that. And then you go, wow, we, I think we actually accomplished something here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, a lot of times they're probably just trying to get your attention um, you know, and, and when you respond back, that's probably really appreciated. It brings them down a little bit now. Yeah. I'll say this, Matt. I do. Whenever that happens, I, and if I comment to one of those, my rule, my personal rule is I have to go comment to three positive comments and say, <laughs> thank you. So thank you so much. Thanks three times. Right. Three to- <laughs> yeah, that's a good rule. That's a good rule. Plus you want to read those positive ones. If you're reading the negative ones, just for yes. your own personal state of mind. Um, I, I got to imagine your fans between the podcast, the YouTube, the music, the books, I mean, you get the, the, the apparel company, you got so much going on your hardcore fans. I've got to imagine, feel like they really know you unlike, you know, fans know, like they got to feel a, a real connection with you. Um, do you feel like your fans get you? Yeah, I, I, that's the goal for sure. That's exactly what I go for with all of this, the different kinds of content 
is so that I want my fans to feel like we're old neighbors. They know me. They know everything about me. We've, we've been we've been sitting on the porch together for years. That's what I want them to feel like, um, because then I can get them to dive deeper into the the deeper songs or the the second verse of the album cuts, and I can get them to go to concerts and be engaged the whole time. And I can get them to follow a YouTube video all the way to the end. That doesn't happen that way typically, but that's the goal is to get that, that deep commitment through them knowing me at, at a deeper level so that then they go the extra mile when we're at a concert and we're the, the first band out of four at a big festival. They're showing up early and staying the whole time and yelling loudly. That's the kind of commitment I'm looking for. Yeah. Very cool. Um, and on, on your fans, I mean, I, I read this, I don't know if, if I got this correctly, you had a contest where you had fans come, come to your, your personal farm to win your truck where they did one of those contests. Like you see on happy days or an old sitcom where they put their hand on the truck and whoever can keep it there longest. Yeah. So, so number one, I think that that shows you do have some trust in your fans. Cause there's, there's no way I'm inviting five random friends or fans over to my, my residence and let me let them know where I live. Like you got to have some trust there. Was it actually where you live and what gave you the confidence that this would be safe? Okay. Well, this is where it's where our offices are. So Mm. we don't actually sleep there. So my kids don't sleep here, which is where I am right now. It's right outside this window here where we did it. So it's what well, we call it the Yee Yee Farm, and it's it's where we have our everything, our headquarters of everything. And um, we did have, uh, you know, a few security measures, and of course, COVID measures, and but is we didn't do any background checks or anything like that. So um, I, I guess we had, you know, we we have. Sheriff's department on speed dial. And I guess we, we just kind of assumed that there was enough people here on my team that if something weird happened, uh, we could take care of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, I mean, that's a special relationship. Now you mentioned Yee Yee. So, so I, I, I tried to do a little digging to understand what, what, what is Yee Yee? You got Yee Yee apparel. What actually, what is the, the message behind Yee Yee? Where did it come from? What does it mean? Yeah, that so the um, the original video with Earl Dibbles Jr. in 2011, the one that we were just trying to promote the album and just ha- you know have fun. We didn't know where it was going to lead. In the middle of that video, my brother's filming, and I'm out in the field as Earl, and and he says, "Yo, yee yee," and I said, "Yee yee," you know, with my hands above my head, and it's like an old Texas cattle call, but it was really just on a whim. It didn't mean anything. It still didn't mean anything when we put the video out, but people, for some reason, started gravitating towards that little moment of him raising his hands and doing that. And they started coming to the concerts, holding up signs that said Yee Yee. They actually spelled it out for us. Y-E-E, Y-E. And that, that, that popularity grew and grew and grew until we knew we should probably get this trademark before someone else does and doesn't allow us to use it anymore. And it just became, kind of the centerpiece to the brand yeah you got the whole yee nation and all that it's 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 pretty cool how things kind of come up like that organically and, and become a thing 
Very cool. Yeah. Um, Texas, Texas, it's it's a different kind of place, different than the rest of the country. I would say in many ways, you know, so every state has its i its own identity. Uh, Texas is is very specific. A lot of Californians are bailing from California for Texas. I know a lot of Texans don't like that. I'll tell you, my family's actually considering it. Um, you know, I, I love California. The weather's beautiful. The people are amazing. You got the ocean, you got the mountains. It's wonderful, but you also got the taxes, the congestion. And we've been on lockdown here for nine months and, and it, it, it drives me crazy. Like I don't want to get into politics, but it drives, drives me crazy. I, I think it's, it's wrong what they're doing to us. Um, do you guys in general, are you bothered by the immigration to Texas? Um, if, if you're not, why should we move to Texas? What's the best thing about Texas? Well, I'll, I'll say this. Um, I, I don't get bothered by it as much as I get really excited when I see Elon Musk and Joe Rogan and these guys coming to Austin where we live. I'm just like, well, this, this is really cool. I love that. I love that. Um, and so I've, I see those cases a lot more than I've ever seen a case where I go, ah, I wish they hadn't moved here. I don't, I don't personally know, notice that. And so, first of all, I'd love to have you guys, you and your family come to Austin and um, then we could do the podcast all the time. Huh. We could collaborate all the time. Right on. Uh, but, but yeah, it, I, I'm a born and raised Texan. So I, I'm a little biased in that, but um, geographically we have everything you could want from the piney forest to the prairie, to the, to the high plains desert, to the uh, fruitful valleys, to the coast um, to the hill country where we are in, right in the middle. So you get, you get that geographically, you get really mild weather, you know, where you could, you could have a little bit colder weather up in the panhandle or up in Dallas. You can get the, the hot and humid in Houston, or you can get kind of the, the arid mild, uh, you know, central Texas. So weather and geography, this is a great state. The economy is great here. Um, and it's it's really big, so you could you could stay within our state, just like California, and you could travel for a long, long, oh, long time. Hell yeah! And you never leave. <laughs> yeah. You know? so, I, um, I remember moving. <laughs> I I moved to California. For, I bounced around the country for a while. I moved to California from Tennessee, and it was a three day drive. Almost two days of that was going through Texas. I could not <laughs> believe how big it was. I mean, it's it's gigantic. I don't think the map does it justice. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a big place and you get a little bit of everything here. So yeah, it's a, it's a great place to relocate. Yeah. All right. Well, Hey, that's, that's our time. You've been, you've been super gracious with your time. Um, why don't you tell fans of this show where they can find out more about you, get in, get, where can they get your album, uh, refresh them on the, the philanthropy one more time. Sure. Yeah. You can find me on all social media, Granger Smith. So any, every platform, it's the same. It's Granger Smith. Um, my website's grangersmith.com. Um, I have a couple of YouTube pages. One of them is Granger Smith music. And one of them is called the Smiths. So the Smiths is the, the family blog we, we talked about. Um, yeah. The podcast people, is on fans of the show. I, I highly recommend checking out the Smiths. It's, it's really good. People who like this show will definitely like the Smiths. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Awesome. 
I love to hear that. I love to hear that there's a connection there. So yeah, I'd, I'm very proud of the Smiths. So um, the the philanthropy is riverkellyfund.org. And you could also see that through me or my wife, Amber, um, through our social media. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks again. It's been great. Thank you so much. You take care. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. All right. Hey, that was excellent. I, I, I appreciate it. I, I was a little little uneasy about a- asking those tough questions. You, you handled them like a champ. I'm sure you've gotten them before. Thank you very much. Really great. I understand. And, and thanks for having me, man. And uh, you're a great interviewer. You have a really great platform. I, I love the podcast and um, yeah, I love the way you keep it flowing. And you're, it's, it's crazy because you're better than so many radio, radio guys that I know. Oh, thanks, so, man. Appreciate that. You have, you, have real, you have a real talent at it. So keep it up. I appreciate that. You keep all your stuff. I'm, I'm, I, uh, I hit up your your manager for Kid Rock, and then they they mentioned you, and I was like, yeah. I mean, I recently got into your music about six months ago, just coincidence. But uh, really, the new album, it's killer. It's a good album. Like, has the awesome. has has the response been uh, mostly positive? Uh, yeah, yeah, it has. Like we said at the beginning of the, of the podcast, it's hard to see without touring because usually touring is the yeah, thing that you notice. Like, here they come. They love yeah. it. So it's hard without that. But um, I'm proud of it. And it's great. It's going to be a good 2020. It's great. When you do get out there and tour, people are going to, you know, a lot of times fans, they don't want to hear the new shit. You know, I, I know, <laughs> yeah. you know you had yeah. a concert. Don't play the new stuff. Yeah. That's not going to be the case with this one. This one is a killer album. It's great. Thank you, brother. All right, man. I hope we get to do this podcast again one of these days. Absolutely. For sure. Thanks, man. Take Thank care. You, brother. Right. Bye-bye. Okay, team, exciting news. Your buddy Matt here has finally realized a lifelong dream of becoming a professional athlete at the tender age of 47. Uh, We have a new partner, Vessel Surfboards and Paddleboards, and they are sponsoring me as I begin a quest to paddleboard from here to Catalina and back next year during the Catalina race. I believe it's about 30 miles, but I got to check, you know, 30 miles, 40 miles, all the same. I'm going to get it done. And, uh, That makes me a professional athlete getting paid to do a sport. So by technicality, I'm a professional athlete, and I'm very excited about that. Vessel surfboards and paddleboards, they're excellent. I've used a few different paddleboards, and this one is by far the best. My kids use their surfboards. They're excellent. So support our sponsor. Go out and try them. That's Vessel, V-E-S-L. All right, guys. 